Please open your Bible to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1. We have a philosophy here at Cornerstone that goes by the phrase, growth through depth. Growth through depth. This is the idea that the church builds out, meaning the gospel advances, disciples are added as it's built up. Meaning we believe it's as Christ's disciples are taught to do all that He commanded them, which is the second half of the Great Commission, that they'll then go and perform the first half, which is to go and make disciples of all the nations. And since the church is built up, as it's taught to do all that Christ has commanded them, meaning it's built up as it receives this extensive teaching in the Word, then the way that the gospel goes out ultimately is by digging deep. We dig deep into the Word, deep into relationships with one another, and as the nourishment from the Word causes the church to grow up, it's then that its branches spread out and cover the whole earth. Again, that's more or less the basic philosophy that drives our ministry at Cornerstone, growth through depth. As I explained just a few weeks ago, the challenge that Clint and I have been facing as elders is the fact that although we think we're doing the depth part right, uh, the growth part at times hasn't been coming, or perhaps better stated, it hasn't been coming at the pace we may have expected it to come. And that ca- that's caused us to go back and consider, are we doing the depth part right after all? Are we leading in the ways that we should be? Because if so, then where's the growth? Why isn't the kingdom advancing? We ultimately decided that we do believe the church is still on track. We're going in the right direction. And over the past several weeks, as we've studied the kingdom parables of Matthew 13, I think I've showed you why we've come to that conclusion. After all, there Jesus explains that the coming of the kingdom is going to be a slow affair, right? It isn't going to spring up overnight. In fact, even more than this, he explains that there are going to be times when you're going to go out and cast seed, and although it's good seed, it's going to be rejected. And this is most especially true when you try to cast seed on home soil, so to speak, in your own hometown, among your own people. When that rejection happens, it it isn't necessarily the fault of the sower. Sometimes the seed just falls on bad soil. What matters ultimately is not the result, but that the Christian actually goes out to sow. The Christian isn't responsible for the growth because only God can cause the growth. What they are responsible for is the casting of seed. They must be faithful. That's it. And so long as they're obeying God's command to go out and proclaim the gospel, that's really all that they can do. As Clint and I have discussed this, we've asked ourselves, is our church doing that? Are our people casting seed? Because if the answer is no, then that may point to some defect in our teaching. But if the answer is yes, then it may simply point to the condition of the soil. Well, as we've wrestled with that question, we've determined that the answer is more or less, yes, you are trying to share your faith. You are casting seed. Of course, that's not to say that we can't get better at it, right? I think we'd all recognize that we can get better at evangelism. We'd all recognize that we're probably not as faithful to the Great Commission as we ought to be. Still, my point is that when we talk to you, it would seem that you are thinking about that, that you're even trying to figure out how to do that effectively because you understand that you do need to share the gospel and you do want to be faithful to that mission. 
So sure, could things get better? Yes. But at the same time, we recognize this is hard soil that we're in. You know how in the parable of the sower, there's this road soil where the gospel is first rejected and then it's snatched away by Satan. I'd venture that that describes many of the people that you've encountered here in southwest Missouri. At one point, they may have heard the the true gospel, but they didn't like it, and so they pushed back. They rejected it. And since then, Satan has come and snatched that truth away. Only the way that he's done that here is not through the proclamation of outright bald-faced lies, but rather through the proclamation of false gospels. This is how some people suppress the truth, and most especially, I think, in religiously, uh, historically religious climates where the truth may be particularly pronounced and evident. They don't just outright deny the conviction of their conscience. Instead, they try to silence it with a little false religion. So yeah, I think this is probably hard soil. This is a tough climate to work in. And Clint and I would acknowledge that, and that's why at the end of the day we've determined that we probably don't need to make any major adjustments to the basic direction of the ministry here at Cornerstone. All the same, that being said, I think it probably doesn't hurt to still take a step back and ask ourselves, what does it look like to have an evangelistic attitude? What does the mind of a missionary look like? How does it work, for instance? What causes them to lay it all out there and put their entire life on the line for the gospel? I think we've seen over the past several weeks, that's really where we've, what we've all been called to do. We're all called to be missionaries, even if we never leave our own hometowns, right? It's like I've said, life is a short-term missions trip. So where does that sort of passion for the gospel come from? That's a healthy sort of question to ask, regardless of how faithfully we're sharing the gospel. And so with that in mind, we're going to be spending the next few months exploring Paul's epistle to the Philippians. Because I think in this epistle, perhaps more than any other, we get a glimpse into the evangelistic psyche. And we're going to begin this morning with Paul's greetings to the Philippians, which occurs in Philippians 1, verses 1 to 2. Please follow along here in your Bibles. Paul begins his letter by writing this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There are certain things in life in which we expect a a particular measure of privacy. There's some of the more obvious examples, of course. I mean, you walk into your average uh, clothing store, And uh, you're going to see changing rooms, right? Because we all expect a measure of privacy when we're changing our clothes. If you're unmarried and you live with someone, you probably expect whoever you're living with to stay out of your bedroom. And if you're sitting in your living room, you would probably get a little upset if someone suddenly started watching you through your living room window. It doesn't matter if the blinds are pulled up. You still don't want people watching you. Right? And that's because we all have a reasonable expectation of privacy when we're in our own homes. In the same way, if you've ever had a diary, you'd probably get upset if someone opened it up and started reading it. Whether there's a lock on it or not, right? you'd still be offended. Because we all work under the basic understanding that those types of documents are private. We don't want outsiders reading them. 
Again, these are the more obvious examples of our expectation for privacy. There are some not-so-obvious examples as well. Uh, Say you're talking on the phone in public. You're sitting in a restaurant or something like that, and someone calls, and and you speak to them for a few minutes, and afterwards, the person sitting behind you turns around and makes a comment about what you just said on the phone. You might get a little upset. The reason being, it doesn't matter that you're in a public space, you still believe it's common courtesy not to listen in on other people's conversations. Myself, I, I like to take the John Wayne seat whenever I'm sitting at my laptop in the coffee shop. I have to have my back to the wall facing out into the room because I'm always paranoid about someone looking over my shoulder while I'm working. And why is that? Well, it's because I expect a certain measure of privacy on my personal computer. It doesn't matter that most of the time I'm actually going to say what I'm writing in public later on in the week. I still don't want them reading it over my shoulder while they're standing in line for coffee. You probably get antsy if someone suddenly picked up your cell phone and started scrolling through it, right? That'd bother you because your cell phone, that's private. Have you ever stopped to think about why you desire this level of privacy? Of course, the legal definition of privacy has been increasingly challenged in recent years. You know, you'll hear reports of various government agencies or even large corporations secretly collecting cellular or online data from uh, U.S. citizens and customers. And one of the retorts that you'll often hear by those supporting such policies is usually something along the lines of, well, you don't have anything to fear as long as you have nothing to hide. Besides sounding very eerily to something you might hear out of Orwell's 1984, that still kind of misses the point, doesn't it? The expectation for privacy isn't necessarily nefarious. It isn't always driven by the desire to conceal some dark and secret sin. No, the reason why we want privacy so much of the time is because the things we're concealing, so to speak, are simply personal. They're not meant for public consumption. You know, I have passwords on my computer that I don't mean to share with everyone. I send emails to people, ministry-related emails, mind you, that aren't meant to be confidential. That's why I consider my laptop as a whole as private space. You have text conversations on your phone that are the same way. Even when you're sitting in your living room with your family just watching a movie, that's a moment that's between you guys. You don't want to include the stranger peering in from out on the street. Now, I'm not going to dissect all the reasons why we want privacy here this morning. Neither am I going to try to answer whether or not we should the desire of the kinds of privacy that we so often expect. All I mean to establish is that much of the time, the only reason why we want privacy is because the things that we're sharing in that moment are incredibly intimate. That diary for in, uh, entry, for instance, it reveals you for who you really are. It's the one space where you get to be completely honest, and that's not something you want to share with everyone. What's revealed in the changing room mirror? That's who you really are, at least physically speaking, right? And we don't want to share that with everyone. Now, again, I don't want to dive into the theological implications of this fear of exposure, but that's not really, because that's not really my purpose here this morning. All I mean to establish is that when we start to get into these areas where we have a reasonable expectation for privacy, we're usually stumbling upon an area where we're beginning to discover someone for who they really are. I mean, that was what makes us want to open up the diary, right? 
That's why people will sometimes snoop around someone's bedroom or in their medicine cabinet. It's because we all understand that for better or worse, good or bad, the person that lies behind the curtain or inside the locked cell phone is, in a sense, who they really are. And this is why I think the New Testament epistles, and the Pauline epistles in particular, are such a fascinating genre of biblical literature. You see, letters are one of these areas where we tend to have an expectation for privacy. In fact, the secrecy of correspondence is actually a legal principle written into the Constitution of many countries and is even guaranteed through the rulings of our own Supreme Court. It's expected that no one, not even our own government, is entitled to read our mail because it's private. And at least part of the reason why we have this expectation for privacy is because we understand that personal correspondence often reveals things about us that we don't want to share with other people. Of course, that can come in the form of legally or financially sensitive information, you know, bank account numbers and the like. But sometimes it's just a matter of personal correspondence between us and someone we love, which we don't want to share with just anyone because of how intimate it is. You know, there's mail that touches on certain emotions, certain types of feelings that we don't want to share with just anyone. And it's those thoughts, those feelings, that start to form a window into the soul of a person. It shows us who they really are. Again, this is why some people are tempted to open other people's mail. And it's why we'd be so offended if someone did read our mail. That's why many people will actually order that their personal correspondence be burned upon their death. It's even why the private letters of famous people will sometimes sell for millions of dollars at auction. It's because we know that something as simple as a letter can often offer us an unguarded glimpse into the mind of a person that we love or admire in a way that few other things can. And again, this is what makes the New Testament epistles and the Pauline epistles in particular such a fascinating genre to study. Because when we read these letters, we're getting to interact with someone like the Apostle Paul as he really was. Do you understand what I mean here? There's there's a sense in which the Gospel of Matthew, for instance, was written to be read by a larger audience. Meaning, Matthew very intentionally crafted that material knowing that a lot of different people would read it. Even what we would call the general epistles, uh, 1 Peter, James, these were letters that were written to be circulated. They were more or less the ancient equivalent to a sermon or a podcast, meaning they were written with the expectation that that they would be circulated among the wider public. Not the Pauline epistles. In Paul's epistles, he's usually writing to a specific church and in some instances even specific individuals that he knows personally over some particular issue that they're facing. In other words, when we read the Pauline epistles, we're basically opening Paul's mail. We get to see him as he was, as he ministered to real churches facing real issues in real time. They're a kind of literary photograph where we get to see the man described by Luke in the book of Acts with our own eyes, up close. I don't know if you ever pause to think about the significance of this, but this is utterly remarkable. I mean, it's one thing to read about Jesus in the Gospels, right? But what would you give to have a letter written by him to one of his disciples? 
Don't get me wrong here, this isn't to denigrate the rest of the Scripture, to imply that the other types of writing are in any way inauthentic or something like that. It's all inspired by the Holy Spirit, down to the very words, so it's not as if the Gospels present a less accurate depiction of Jesus just because Matthew intentionally rearranged the material to drive home a particular point. I'm not trying to say anything like that. I'm just saying that there's something very unique, something very compelling even, about being able to see someone like the Apostle Paul communicate in their own personal correspondence in an unguarded moment, if you will. Because it gives us a glimpse of who he really was. And I'll tell you why this thought is is particularly striking as we come to the book of Philippians. There are two reasons, actually, why this matters. The first is that in this letter, Paul is going to consistently point to the Philippians, to his life, as an example. In other words, there's a general rule in interpretation which says description is not prescription. Description is not prescription. But that's probably not a rule that we should apply here. So like Jacob, for instance, right? He had two wives. That doesn't necessarily mean it's okay because description is not prescription in the Scripture, that polygamy is okay. Uh, Jacob also tended to lie after all. Right, And we know that that's wrong. And so we shouldn't take every description of his life as something that we should necessarily go out and repeat. This is part of the beauty of the Bible. It describes our heroes, warts and all. And it's not afraid to do that because it isn't lifting up any of these men as our Savior, save for the God-man, Jesus Christ. So generally speaking, we can't just assume that just because Paul did something, that we should necessarily go and do likewise. We need to confirm if Paul's actions conform to the commands of God before we begin to see them as exemplary. Because apostle though he was, he was still a sinner. And the Bible doesn't shy away from recording sins. Point being, it's the word of God that tells us what is and what is not exemplary. That's expressed first in the very person of Jesus Christ and then second in God's commands, both of which ultimately confirm the other. We don't even look to the apostles themselves for direction. Except, and please hear me, well here so you don't misunderstand what i'm saying except when they're speaking under the inspiration of the holy spirit of course that happens in the books and letters we've received from them which were written under the direction of the holy spirit but it also happens when the apostles in these letters under the inspiration of the spirit tell us that their actions are exemplary and that's exactly what we have in the letter to the philippians paul is going to regularly tell the philippians follow my example He's going to tell them under the inspiration of the Spirit, the way you see me acting right now is exactly how you're supposed to act. So we have this letter that gives us a window into Paul's soul. And in it, he's going to tell us the way you see me thinking right now, that's how you should be thinking too. In fact, this command to think or to consider is going to be something that Paul is going to bring up several times in this epistle. He wants us to think like Christ and to think like Him as He follows Christ. In other words, this genre is really the perfect genre for what Paul hopes to accomplish with the Philippians, because Paul's desire is that they would see his example and follow it. He wants them to act like he acts. He wants them to think like he thinks. And there's no better way for the Philippians, or for you and I for that matter, to know what that looks like than to see it on display in Paul firsthand, without any sort of veil to shield us from his way of life. There's no Instagram filters on this literary photograph. 
No Photoshop, no airbrushing. This is true Paul here. That's what we have in this letter. Again, we're getting to read Paul's mail. And as we read his mail, we get to see him as he really is, which is so critical for us to be able to follow his thinking and his example. The second reason why this particular format is compelling, and in this particular instance, is because this isn't just any letter that we're getting to read here. This is actually a letter between friends. And and quite close friends, actually. If you look here in verses 1 to 2, there are a couple phrases that are sort of significant. For example, in verse 1, Paul refers to both himself and Timothy as servants of Christ Jesus. If you have an ESV in front of you, you might notice there's a little superscript 1 next to that word servants. And that's because the phrasing here is significant. If you try to find the entry for that superscript 1, you'll notice it says something to the effect of, or slaves. And that's because the word here for servants is the Greek word doulos, and it can be translated either as bondservant or even slave. And the point is that this isn't just a servant in the way that you and I tend to think of a servant. When we tend to think of that term servant, we usually think of someone who's hired for the act of serving in a particular capacity, and they more or less have the choice to leave that place of employment or if They're volunteering at place of service. They can leave at any particular time. That's not really the sense we get with doulos. A doulos is someone who is bound to their act of service. Now, that may not always be the kind of servitude like what we think of when we think of our nation's history with slavery. There are plenty of examples in Scripture of someone becoming what we would call a bondservant voluntarily, actually. But regardless of how a person became a doulos, the point is still the same. The doulos is not free to do as they wish. They have a master over them who they must obey, and they are not free to leave his service at their discretion. Paul refers to both himself and Timothy in this way. They are douloi, bondservants, slaves to Jesus Christ. He is their master, their Lord, and they are bound to do his bidding. That terminology is not insignificant of what, in light of what we're going to see transpire in the book of Philippians. Very early in chapter 1, Paul is going to speak of his imprisonment in Rome. That's where Paul's residing as he writes this letter. He's under house arrest in Rome. And I think we'll see that Paul would see his chains first as an expression of his submission to Christ, that he is Christ's doulos, and that he can do nothing else but what Christ demands, which includes the proclamation of the gospel. And then only second would he see those chains as an expression of the power of his Roman captors. Make no mistake, Rome is not the one who controls Paul, even as he sits there in his chains. Jesus Christ is the one who controls Paul. Paul is his doulos, and that is why he writes to the Philippians in these chains. So this is one phrase that we could probably take note of as we read verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy write as servants, douloi, slaves of Christ Jesus. Paul then refers to the Philippians as saints in the middle of verse 1. He says, to the saints in Christ Jesus or at Philippi. That's notable because the word for saints is the Greek word Agios, and it means essentially holy ones, or even more literally, set-apart ones. 
I know a lot of times when we think of a saint, we probably tend to think of it in the way that the Roman Catholic Church defines it. You know, St. Peter, St. Luke, St. Francis, even St. Paul. And the saint in this instance is a special category of Christian. There's someone who has this special access to God by virtue of their uh, righteous life, right? Which is, of course, why people would pray to them. That's not what a saint is in the New Testament, though. In the New Testament, the term saint applies to every Christian. And here in verse 1, Paul writes to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Again, that refers to all the Christians he's writing to, not some kind of special class of Christian. And that's because all Christians are set apart, are sanctified by God for a special kind of use when they believe. It's as Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's essentially what this term saint is referring to. It's referring to the fact that God has created all Christians for good works that we should walk in them. They are thus holy or sanctified or set apart for a special use. Now, the reason why the use of this term would be significant here, that Paul would say this here, is because of what he just said about being a doulos of Christ Jesus and because of who the Philippians are and the types of challenges they seem to be facing when he writes them. For some context, at the time, uh, Philippi was situated along one of the major roads of the Roman Empire called the Via Ignatia or the Ignatian Way. In the year 42 BC, Mark Antony and the man who had later become Caesar Augustus, uh, a man by the name of Octavian at the time, uh, pursued the two men responsible for Julius Caesar's assassination, Cassius and Brutus. They pursued them along the Ignatian Way until they came to Philippi. And there they fought the Battle of Philippi. Cassius and Brutus were defeated, and to commemorate the occasion, Octavian refounded Philippi as a Roman military colony. And that's quite significant because it means that Philippi was essentially a Roman stronghold. Its citizens were granted Roman citizenship, giving them legal privileges that most of the people in the empire did not enjoy. Octavian also populated the area with discharged military veterans after the war. The city was even redesigned architecturally to mirror Rome. As one commentator notes, he says, Roman arches, bathhouses, forms, and temples dominated Philippi at the time of Paul. In fact, even though Philippi was situated in a Greek-speaking province, Latin became the official language of the city. In other words, this would have been an incredibly patriotic city. The people here were thoroughly Roman, and they were proud of it. And this means that at the center of this city's religion was the imperial cult. You see, in ancient Rome, the people didn't just worship the Greek pantheon of gods or the Egyptian gods. They worshipped the emperor as well as a kind of demigod. This was actually a significant source of trouble for the early church. It was more or less expected at the time that a person would express their allegiance to Rome by burning incense to the emperor. And to refuse to worship the emperor was an indication that you were unpatriotic and even subversive to Rome. Both Christians and Jews, of course, refused to worship anyone but the one true God. And while Rome would eventually exempt Jews from having to worship the emperor, the problem with Christians was that they didn't just worship another god, but another king. They worshipped this guy they called Christ Jesus. 
the anointed Jesus. The Philippians were a largely Gentile church. There weren't many Jews living in Philippi when Paul first arrived, and you can probably get a sense as to why that might be once you understand the culture of Philippi. This would not be the type of city where a Jew would have felt comfortable. Well, it would appear that when Paul writes the Philippians, they're experiencing some type of persecution for their faith. And while the exact source of this persecution can't be pinned down, there's good reason to believe that it might have something to do with this imperial worship. And I say that because Paul seems very intent, not only in pointing out the progress of the gospel that he has made within Caesar's own household in Rome, but also in reminding the Philippians that they're actually citizens of a different kingdom, a greater kingdom than that of Rome, and that's the kingdom of heaven. In chapter 3, verse 20, for instance, Paul says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body to be, uh, to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Listen, guys, those words would have resonated with the citizens of a Roman colony, struggling to stand firm for their faith in the midst of a society that's completely enamored by the power of Rome. So you see, when Paul begins his letter by saying, Paul and Timothy, servants, douloi, of Christ Jesus, to all the saints, agios, in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi, what we're seeing is a bit of foreshadowing. Paul wants to begin this letter by reminding these Christians that Christ has set them apart. That he's called them to be different, even distinct from the surrounding culture because they belong to a different kingdom, a different king. So again, this is another phrase we could latch on to, this term saints, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Another phrase that we could probably take note of occurs at the end of verse 1 where Paul notes that he's writing not only to the saints who are at Philippi, but also to the, quote, overseers and deacons. The term for overseers there is the Greek word episkopoi. It's the term from which we derive the English term bishop. Paul is addressing the bishops and deacons, and it's a term that's used interchangeably in the New Testament with the term pastor or shepherd, and at other times even elder. Probably the best example of this occurs in 1 Peter 5, 1-2, where Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. He says, shepherd, or pastor, it's the same word in the Greek, whether we translate it pastor or shepherd, shepherd the flock among you, he says, exercising episcopuntes, oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. This tells us one of the roles that pastors or elders are supposed to perform in the church. They are to exercise oversight. They are episcopoi, bishops, overseers. Thus, this phrase here at the end of verse 1 is significant because it helps us to see that there are two offices in the church. There are the bishops, the elders, the pastors, whatever you want to call them. And then there are the deacons. And what's especially notable is that Paul addresses not just the overseer singular in the Philippian church, as if there's only one elder in this church, but the overseers, plural. Thus, this passage not only seems to point to the mere existence of elders and deacons within the church, but it actually argues for a plurality of elders and deacons in particular. There seems to have been only one church in Philippi. At the very least, Paul is addressing them as a unified church, and as he writes this unified church, he addresses the overseers 
plural. So there seems to be a decent case that the local church should be governed by a plurality of elders from this verse. We could latch on to this for a while if we wanted to. But I'll tell you, I don't think any of these are the most significant phrase in this opening line. You guys want to know what I think the most significant phrase is? I think it's this phrase, very simple. It's this phrase, at Philippi. Paul is writing to the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. And that's significant because the church at Philippi was a very different sort of church. This was actually the first church that Paul established in Europe. I imagine you probably remember the time in Acts when Paul is wanting to minister in Asia Minor and Luke says that the Holy Spirit prevented him. And then Paul has this dream where this Macedonian appears. And he's saying to Paul, come over to Macedonia and help us. Well, the very first city that Paul traveled to to preach the gospel in response to that call was the city of Philippi. As I mentioned, there weren't many Jews there, not even enough to form a synagogue actually when Paul arrived. But Paul soon established a church here nonetheless. It was here that Paul was jailed for exercising a demon from a fortune-telling slave girl. The official charge, of course, was that he was, quote, advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. So once again, I think you can get a sense of the Roman patriotism that was going on in Philippi, even from the charges brought against Paul. Nevertheless, that wasn't the real problem. The real problem is that by exercising this demon, Paul had taken away the source of income from these girl, this girl's owners. So they brought this trumped-up charge against Paul. Paul was imprisoned, and then, of course, very famously, this earthquake occurred that opened the prison doors, unlocked the chains from Paul and his companion Silas, and then rather than try to escape, Paul and Silas refused to leave. The decision not only saved the jailer's life and led him to convert to Christianity along with the rest of his family, but it also led to this confrontation with the officials in Philippi where Paul informed them that they had beaten and imprisoned a Roman citizen without trial. That was against the law. And so the magistrates actually ended up apologizing to Paul and then even begged him to leave the city. The point being, Paul not only brought the gospel to Philippi, but he also brought uh, uh, bought them a measure of protection for a period of time because of the suffering that he experienced with them in their presence. So the Philippians got to witness firsthand the kind of sacrifice that Paul experienced for the gospel. When Paul writes this letter under house arrest in Rome to the Philippians, there's nothing new about any of this for them. This was a cost of discipleship that Paul demonstrated from the very beginning of their faith. And they got to witness not only the sacrifice that this sort of suffering entails, but they also got to witness God's faithfulness to provide for Paul in that suffering. So it probably shouldn't surprise us, then, that the Philippians, of all the churches that Paul ministered to, ended up becoming perhaps the most faithful in their giving, and that they did this in spite of the fact that they were also among the most impoverished of the churches that he ministered to. Paul says in Philippians 4.15 that when he entered Macedonia, no church entered in partnership with him in both receiving and giving in the same way that the Philippians did. 
According to 4.16, we know that they sent Paul support at his very next stop on his missionary journey in Thessalonica. According to 2 Corinthians 11.7-9, they continued to send him support while he stayed and ministered to the Corinthians. And when Paul decided to take up a collection for the saints in Jerusalem during his third missionary journey, the Philippians not only gave, but they gave abundantly and sacrificially. Describing their giving, Paul tells the Corinthians that although suffering a severe test of affliction and extreme poverty themselves, quote, they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So can you start to see why this would maybe be a special church for Paul? If there's any church that seems to understand Paul's passion for the gospel, if there's any church that's even willing to share with Paul in suffering for the advancement of the gospel, it's the Philippians. Here in chapter 1, verse 5, Paul even refers to their relationship as a, quote, partnership in the gospel. These aren't bystanders. They didn't just cheer Paul on from a distance. No, they participated with him in the advancement of the gospel. In fact, the very reason why Paul is writing them this letter is because the Philippians have heard that he's under house arrest in Rome, and so they've taken up a collection to support him once again. So can you see these aren't just merely disciples that Paul's writing to? These are friends, dear friends, partners with Paul. And just so you know, that's not just my opinion. That's not a conclusion that I come to simply from the observations that I'm making about their history together. Scholars have noted that the actual form of this letter most aligns with the type of ancient letter known as a letter of friendship. Like you know how there's business letters or there's cover letters, there's even personal letters, right? And depending on which type of letter we're writing, we'll format the letter differently for that occasion. Well, it was the same in the ancient Near East, the same in ancient Rome. You had different types of letters which were formatted differently for different occasions. And the particular format of this letter most closely aligns with a letter that was written as an expression of friendship. Paul isn't writing the Philippians merely as their pastor or even as an apostle. No, he's writing to them as their friend. He loves this church. They're his ministry partners, his peers in a sense. This is family. And what this means is that we don't only get to see Paul's example in this letter, which, of course, again, Paul tells us to follow. But we actually get to see this example in a particularly unguarded moment. In fact, one of the things that's unique about this letter is that Paul doesn't write it to address some great concern going on in the church. I mean, you read Corinthians, for instance, And Paul writes to address a variety of problems going on in the church. The same is true with Galatians. Paul writes to address a crisis that's going on in that church. Even Romans, Paul writes that letter to address a kind of division that's taking place in the church. Not Philippians. I mean, sure, the Philippians are facing some problems, but that's not really why Paul writes. We're all going to experience problems in our faith. And so Paul takes the time to address those issues as he's made aware of them. The difference is that none of these issues appear to be a serious threat to the church at Philippi. So Paul touches on these problems, but they're not the reason for his writing. No, the reason he writes, more or less, is to tell the Philippians, thank you. 
Thank you for the gift you sent me. Thank you for partnering with me in the gospel. Thank you for being a constant encouragement to me on my missionary journeys. And then as he writes to thank his friends, he also encourages them. He says, now bear up, don't quit, keep, keep fighting with me. I think of this letter uh, kind of like a letter that a president might write to a, uh, a grieving mother or widow in a war. Right? The, the president won't only thank the family for their sacrifice, but at the same time he'll often remind them of what it was all for as a way of encouraging them to persevere through their grief. That's essentially the tone of Paul's letter to the Philippians. He's saying, thank you for fighting with me. It's not in vain. Now, let's keep going. We've got to win the war. This means that Philippians is a very unique letter, a very private kind of letter, even if it is addressed to all the saints in Philippi, even including the overseers and the deacons. You see, in these other letters, there's a sense in which we tend to see Paul through the lens of whatever threat he's having to address at that time, but that's not the case with the Philippians. Here we get to see what Paul is like when he's at ease. We get to see what Paul is like when he's interacting with Christians who are on the right path. If I could put it this way, in this letter, we don't just get to read Paul's mail. We actually do get to peer through the living room window and see what he's like when he's relaxing with his family. Baseline Paul. Paul without additions. That's how I like to think about the book of Philippians. So then, what what is Paul like? How does he think? You know, what matters to him? What are the kinds of things that he dreams about? What lies at the root of his deepest desires? And how do those desires work their way up into the actions of Paul's life? In short, what does this life that Paul tells us to imitate look like? And that's what we're going to see unfold over the next several months as we walk through this epistle together. I've entitled this series, The Evangelistic Psyche, because I think that's what we discover in this epistle. Again, Paul is going to urge us to imitate him, to even think like him, and to do so as he himself tries to follow in the footsteps of Christ by proclaiming the coming of his heavenly kingdom, even in the face of affliction and suffering. So how does the evangelist think? What kind of priorities, what sort of outlook are at the basis of their decisions? And for that matter, what sort of attitudes and actions does this missionary mindset produce? I think these are the larger questions that this epistle will address. And my hope is that it will produce in us the same sort of evangelistic zeal that we see not only in the Apostle Paul, but even in his ministry partners, these saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Let's close this morning by praying to that end. Let's pray that God would use the coming months in this study together to make us a Pauline church, a Philippian church, a church whose zeal for the gospel leads us to partner with men like Paul as we advance the kingdom of God together. Let's pray.